Hola. Bienvenidos. I'm JJ Saldana. And I'm Rebecca De Leon, and welcome to the Latino Card. Uh, we are recording out of the Radio Boise uh, studios today in downtown Boise. Quick shout out to Joey Horton for uh, producing our music for us. Uh, today in this podcast, we're going to have, I know, a very deep discussion because this is the kind of discussion that I always have with our guest. I'm very honored uh, to be talking to Jose Alfredo Hernandez today. Welcome, Jose. Thanks for being on the podcast. Welcome. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate it. Before we get started in the really heavy stuff, just kind of let us know who you are. What do you do for a living? What's your background? What kind of education do you have? Where'd you, you know, come from? Where'd you come from? What makes you think you're good enough to be on our podcast? <laughs> <laughs> Why well, are you worthy? Well, that's a tall order. Um, <laughs> let's see. I'm not sure I'm good enough to be on the podcast. Oh, uh, yes, we'll you are. see uh, how that works out. Born and raised in Nyssa, Oregon. Um, currently live in Cuna, Idaho. I am currently uh, the clinical supervisor and program manager for a new path domestic violence counseling. Uh, we have an office in Boise and in Caldwell. The owners of um, A New Path Domestic Violence Counseling also own Recovery for Life, which is a substance abuse uh, agency in Boise and in Caldwell, and was doing work there as well. Over the last probably year and a half, have uh, shifted the focus primarily to doing domestic violence work. Uh, graduated from Boise State, go Broncos, and um, got my master's degree over at NNU, uh, in large part to uh, Dr. Al Sanchez, so a shout out to Dr. Al Sanchez. My master's was in social work. And when I was at NNU, it was going to be a dual focus. So focusing on macro policy, those kinds of things, and then also focusing on uh, the micro, which is kind of the counseling and those kinds of things. At the end, uh, it was really primarily uh, macro, and so, which has been interesting because what I do now primarily is individual work and doing the counseling and group facilitation and group work. And so trying to marry the idea between what's going on with the individual directly in front of me and how is it that the surrounding environment impacts this individual and their behavior. So I've always been you know, very grateful to have that dual um, perspective in relation to uh, conversations I have with clientele. Namas. Mm, a big part of your um, clientele Latino? Yes and, and no. It, it, so it kind of fluctuates. Okay. Uh, out in Caldwell, because you're in Caldwell, uh, we have a high percentage of Latinos uh, in the programs and in the Boise uh, office, not as much. Um, in addition to doing the paid work, I'm involved in you know various uh, community activities, uh, always with a focus on uh, the Latino community uh, and trying to do what I can to address some of the issues and to just be involved and continue moving uh, some of the effort forward. Uh, so kind of playing um, wherever I'm needed and to the best of my ability. Uh, so you have been doing volunteer work in the community for years and years and years. So you and I, that's actually how you and I met is we were volunteering together. I'm in the community. We were with the um, Idaho Hispanic Caucus and then it turned into the Idaho Leadership Institute and I think we've, haven't we partnered on a few other things? Multiple. Um, both of those agencies are correct. Uh, we did some work through ILI um, doing the Mask You Live In. We did some of that work way yes, back in the I day. Know. That was good stuff. Um, and, and really, honestly, I think in regards to the relationship, it's been uh, off-site conversations about the things that we were, you know, dealing with and addressing and how that related to our personal lives uh, and getting kind of an understanding in regards to why we're doing the work that we do, why it means what it means to us and, you know, what we're trying to do in the moment and what we're trying to do in the future. So mm -hmm. that's always been um, 
I think the best of moments in regards to our relationship is to be able to have these conversations to say, hey, man, what's going on in your life? Uh, how do these issues relate to your life? And, you know, why are we involved and what are we hoping to accomplish? So tell us then, tell us about the groups that you lead. What, you know, how do people get to those groups and, and what, what kind of work do you do there? And what do the people who attend get out of it? So um, our agency is a state-approved uh, domestic violence, what they call batterers intervention program. And so clients that come into our program are, generally speaking, um, at a high percentage of the time, right, 99% of the time, they're court-ordered to come into our program. And they're court-ordered to engage in batterers intervention uh, programming, which is designed to essentially, you know, change uh, abusive behavior. Uh, you do that through various curriculums that have different modalities of treatment, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, primarily um, trauma-informed therapy, and therapy in the form of groups, right? So we, we work in a group context, and, you know, we will do process groups and talk about uh, topics um, of interest in relation to domestic violence, or we'll follow a specific curriculum uh, that is very structured and their job as clientele is to just execute their curriculum to the best of their ability. So at the end of the day, our primary focus is to end domestic violence. Uh, and we do that by trying to change um, men's behavior. Now, we do have women's group as well, but at a very small percentage of the, the client base, right? So mm -hmm. a, a majority of our clientele uh, are men. Mm -hmm. So you talk of toxic masculinity. Can you just, to, for our audience, explain what toxic masculinity is? Uh, that's a... That's a little tough um, in that right now it's such a loaded term right. and it's such a weaponized term that just hearing the phrase, you know, kind of disengages the individual from having the conversation or we get defensive very quickly. But essentially the, the nuts and bolts of this idea of toxic masculinity is that we have a default setting within this notion of masculinity uh, where we're kind of hyper-aggressive and hyper-masculine to the, to the point that it's destructive to us and our personal lives and the lives of those around us, right? And so we engage in masculinity in a singular fashion uh, 100% of the time, and the costs associated with that are pretty high, not only to the individual, uh, but to the social systems that they come from. If you look uh, at men's health outcomes, um, you know, it's costing us as men to live our life from this default setting all the time. We have higher rates of mental health. We have higher rates of dropout. We have higher rates of school expulsion. We uh, are just not doing well. And then you look at the ones uh, that we are attached to via relationships uh, and the damage that we're doing. You know, I just read uh, an article that talked about the number one killer of women worldwide is domestic violence. Oh, yeah. wow. Um, yeah, and, you know, it's not just women who are um, suffering from this notion of domestic violence. Men who suffer violence are also suffering um, this from at the hands of other men. Right. And so, you know, we just have some work to do. And all of that was new. I, d I didn't, you know, I wasn't um, looking to do domestic violence work. I wasn't like motivated or I wasn't, um, you know, uh, impassioned about this particular subject, it came from a di very different place, a very personal place. And these last five to six years uh, doing the work, it's been a real wake-up call because I had to do some really deep reflection uh, about my own life, uh, my own beliefs, my own behaviors, and that's informed the work that I've been doing over the last five to six years. Wow, there's, there, there's so much that I want to jump into that. 
Um, you know, I, I, my personal, you know, my day job, the one that pays the bills, <laughs> that isn't this. <laughs> uh-huh. is That'll also, change soon, given yeah, your guys' uh, sure, track record right now. You I guys sure are excellent. Hope so. <laughs> That's nice. We're going to, um, we're going to talk about how people can make me rich a little bit later. <laughs> okay. <laughs> but I, in my day job, I also do domestic violence and sexual assault prevention. Um, and same, same thing as you, isn't, it isn't something that I was like, you know, when I was a child, like, hey, I'm going to work in this when I get older. Um, but it's something that I am now, you know, very, very passionate about. And it is, I think for a lot of advocates, it's very um, kind of emotionally taxing. You know, uh, for a lot of advocates, you know, there's, we always have to talk about how self-care is very, very important. So in these groups where it's it's only um, convicted like badders, we don't like to use that word, I know, in the sure. field, um, but people who have been convicted of some sort of abuse, they're, they're court ordered to show up. So does that mean that do, they don't want to be there? Do they not want to be in group initially? I think that the public at large has a preconceived notion of what programs like these are, and that includes the men and the women that come into our program. Uh, I think that, you know, people are afraid to be thought of a certain way. I'm a wife beater. Uh, I'm mm-hmm. a man beater, right? I'm, you know, on domestic violence. I'm a batterer. And um, what I tried to do with my clientele, um, and I steal this from Tony Porter and the... Um, a Call to Men. A Call to Men's. Um, they're kind of phrasing, listen, I'm not here to indict. I'm here to invite a conversation that's deeply needed uh, in our community about us and our behaviors and the things that we're doing and so I try to really create an environment that is non-judgmental and still is able to hold people accountable but you can't hold people accountable until you're able to uh, see yourself in the individual and until you're able to kind of acknowledge your own issues and your own uh, work and and gain the respect right I think sometimes um, in the various programs that we have, the approach that we take is that we're going to demand respect and you're in trouble and mm-hmm. you have to do this and anything short of that, you know, you're in uh, denial or you're just kind of, uh, you know, causing problems and whatnot. Uh, I, I'm not convinced that that's the, the route that we need to take. So I try to, you know, create an environment where Listen, at the end of the day, and this is my personal motto, and this is what I try to bring into the culture uh, of my programming, what I'm interested in and what I'm deeply passionate about is how is it that I can help you become the best version of yourself? Mm -hmm. If you are as close as you can possibly be to the best version of yourself, then this issue of domestic violence should be a non-issue. This issue of substance abuse should be a non-issue. And whatever other issues that you have in your life, they should become non-issues because they're not in line with the best version of yourself. Now, that for me is my purpose on the planet. If you look at my name, Jose, it means uh, God bring forth, right? And if you look at my middle name, Alfredo, uh, it is Old English for Alfred, and Alfred means, you know, the counselor of elves. And so one way or another, my job was always to counsel individuals to bring forth the best version of themselves, and I get to do that in domestic violence classes. I get to do that in baseball and softball fields as a baseball and softball coach. I get to do that in my friendships as a friend and helping people out. Um, And so that's always been my passion and domestic violence um, programming 
the agency is a way for me to stand in, in that work and to stand in those values. Do you, wow. have, do you have a lot of people that, um, I know you said most of your clients are court-ordered, but do you have people that go in on their own voluntarily? Yes, uh, but not to a degree that we would like to see. And plus, I think we have to have the discussion at the state level and at the and with all the partners that are involved in this kind of work. Again, primarily clients are sent to us via the court system uh, or the probation officer when they're released from prison. For example, the parole board commission will say, "Hey, they have to engage in this in this work um, or engage in domestic violence treatment." And the thing is that we're set up after the fact. So people come to us after they've committed their behaviors, right? Mm -hmm. Somehow we have to get out in front of this thing mm -hmm. and work with individuals who are, who are struggling in their relationships, who are struggling in their behaviors, mm -hmm. who are struggling to manage their thoughts, their emotions, right? Those kinds of things and help them, you know, do and be what we've been constructed to do as human beings, which is engage in relationship, right? Everything about us, head to toe, is for the purpose of relationship. There's a reason that you have eyes in the front of your face and not the sides of your face. Uh, there's a reason that we're forward-looking. Uh, we are meant for relationship. And so, you know, a lot of people struggle in that, and we don't have these conversations on a routine or regular basis. And, you know, a lot of people struggle in that. And so somehow we have to figure out... Um, how do we get people to come in and engage in our programming um, despite them not being court ordered to do so? Uh, and that's what we're trying to do at our agency. I'm trying to figure out, okay, we have the back end covered, right? When people get in trouble, we offer this programming and this service for them hopefully to get off probation, uh, to change their behaviors and to move forward in their lives. But how do we get out in front, right? So that we help men and women in their relationships, men and men in their relationship, women and women relationship, or whatever relationship, you know, takes, however form that takes place. But then also what I'm really interested in is how do we get to the youth? And how do we engage in this conversation right. with our youth, right? How do we develop leadership amongst our men to address this issue of domestic violence? Because if you look at the landscape of domestic violence, what you see the primary instigators in regards to um, responding to this notion of domestic violence has been women, right? They're the right. ones who've set up uh, much of this, right, in their uh, efforts to keep themselves safe and to hold people accountable um, and to, you know, get this issue taken care of. At some point, men have to step up and say, hey, listen, uh, as much as this is a women's issue, it's very much a men's, a man's issue. Mm -hmm. uh, you look at domestic violence, you know, worldwide, and, and you look at some of the statistics and stuff, again, um, we have a problem. The other side, and there's always going to be an, uh, the other side, but there's people, researchers, you know, academics and, and you know, um, others involved in the work that say, hey, you know, there's just an equal amount of violence coming from uh, women towards men as well. Um, and that might hold true. And, you know, I think everybody struggles with that. But what I have come to know and what I've come to understand and believe is while that might be true, that's out my that's outside my my focus, right outside my scope. What I know is that as men, we're struggling uh, and we got to do a better job in, in regards to uh, being fully present in relationships and, and, and being healthy in that relationship and allowing ourselves and our spouse uh, to be that best version of themselves. Do you know of any um, training for our youth? Because part of me wonders how much of this is generational. Like how, you know, how did, did it come from their parents came from an abusive relationship and now the son or daughter is also in an abusive relationship? Do you have any kind of statistic on that? 
I don't know if I have statistics per se, but I agree with you 100%. Uh, so the first question, right, I don't think that there's consistent programming for the youth. Uh, I think that we are kind of sporadic in our responses to those things. So we'll have a program that we'd execute for a year or two. Uh, and then, you know, for various reasons, uh, you know, people come and go, funding dries up, those That's kinds of things. Um, and we struggle to have consistency in the programming. Um, and what's really of interest to me, right, is if you look, there was a study that came out of Harvard, and it was a longitudinal study that was 70, 80 years long. And so it followed men from the 1930s. And it followed them, their families, their friends, their grandsons, their grandchildren. And, you know, the kind of primary theme from that study was that the number one predictor of happiness and the goal for most of us in our lives is to be happy, right? Mm -hmm. So the number one predictor of happiness was the quality and the depth of relationship. Let me ask you, where are you learning you know, what class did you go to that taught you the quality and depth of relationship or how to have quality and depth in your relationship? Oh, I didn't. And so you, you mentioned that intervention is very, very important. And I think a large part of intervention um, for young boys is to have a strong male role model. And I think that you, above a lot of people that I know, are, is that you are a strong male role model. In, in the way you conduct yourself, the, the work that you do coaching baseball, um, you are very much something that, that a young Latino boy can look up to and be like, wow, look at him. He's well-spoken and, and he understands. And, you know, that would be a really good thing to follow, but you're just one person. I know that Liliana Vega, um, she used to be a tenured professor at the University of Idaho. I miss you, Liliana. I know, we miss we you, Liliana. We miss Liliana. <laughs> well, she's, she was a lost to our community Lily. when she moved to California. But, um, you know, she would, she worked with the 4-H ap the, the after school program, which was, I think, almost entirely Latino youth. And they had a lot of sort of risk factors in their lives. And she would always sing your praises. Um, Jose Alfredo saying like, we need more Jose Alfredo's because these young boys, I can see them. I can see that a lot of them just really need a mentor. They need like a strong male figure in their life. Um, you know, what, how can we make more of you, basically? And and can, can you explain kind of the phenomenon of of not being able to have enough male role models? Right now I'm working with, in partnership with the Idaho Coalition Against Sexual Assault and Domestic Violence. Uh, and a shout out to uh, my partner there, Jeff. Uh, and He's Estefania. pretty amazing. And uh, both of them, are, and, and the organization at large, is doing incredible work. Mercedes Munoz uh, as well, um, and, and a handful of other people that are there. I primarily know and work with those three individuals. Uh, but they're working on this project called Engaging Young Latino Men, the ELM Project. And they are kind of in the preliminary stages of the work that they're doing. And they have done what they call... Um, I don't think I have the name right, but it's kind of these community circles, right, where they go out to the communities and they kind of ask these questions and to kind of gauge where the community's at and what their needs are. And the exact thing that you talked about is, is what they're seeing. These, you know, um, meetings that they are organizing are primarily attended by women and uh, the men are missing. And when they had conversations with the men, both the adult but primarily with the younger men, one of the themes that came out from those conversations was that they would like, you know, mentors. Uh, and they would like to have conversations with their fathers. They would like to know uh, more about what it is to be a man. I mean, what does that mean uh, in the context of their lives and in the context of our community and our society? 
And so, yeah, it's it's a big deal that's missing. We are not engaging in conversations with our with our children, and showing them the way. And listen, I'm I'm forty. Uh, what is it? Forty seven now. I'm forty seven. <laughs> and you know, you look at the rates of domestic violence right now, and that means that these rates that we have, that means that they were allowed by my generation, and they were allowed by the generation above us mm-hmm. and you know again at some point we have to take ownership and responsibility for that to say hey some of this is on me uh for not being engaged for not having that conversation for thinking well i'm not one of them that doesn't you know apply to me uh, i'm a good guy but you know our silence allows these things to take place and to happen and all of us within our social circle you know know of one or two individuals just like hey man that's questionable in regards to what you're doing, mm-hmm. but we don't like that conversation. It's an uncomfortable conversation. We don't want to lose friendships or relationships or those kinds of things. And that's coming with a very high price in regards to not you know, willing to afford that discomfort uh, and that conversation. Uh, and I really appreciate all the things that you said in, in, in relation to me, right? And I take a lot of pride in those things, but I have to tell you, um, this work uh, has been very, very humbling. Uh, and again, I wasn't looking for it. And so, you know, uh, around 2012, um, there were some things that took place in my life personally. My, my wife got herself into some, some trouble, and um, it resulted in me having to get a second job. And uh, that second job was domestic violence. I, I you know, I, I needed some extra income. And... Um, the individual that I was working with and for at the time, uh, Hector de Leon, a shout out to Hector de Leon, a long time no uh, social to advocate. Me, <laughs> Everyone thinks he's my dad. He's right. not my dad. Uh, wonderful human being, uh, long time advocate, and uh, always engaged in the community in one way or another. But um, he said, Hey, man, I, we got some work for you. And so I started to sit in on the domestic violence groups. And starting to learn the curriculum and, and, and whatnot. And as I was sitting there listening and going through the book, I was just like, can you cuss on this? Um, I was Ash. like, I can beep it out if you want. But <laughs> I don't because it was real. I was <laughs> like, holy shit, I'm all over this book. Um, and that was a wake up call for me. And um, it was really uh, a moment for me to reflect on this life that I've been living um, and, you know, the kind of life that I wanted. And it made me kind of stop and rethink the whole relationship that I had been in at the time. And so, you know, it it started for me there. And, and what ended up happening was, you know, a year later, um, and I've asked my wife permission to tell a story because it includes her, you know, my story is her story and whatnot. And I want to be respectful of that. But it, it resulted in her, um, we call it going on vacation for a little while. Mm. And uh, two days before uh, her going on vacation, um, I uh, had my career in HIV uh, kind of terminated. Um, and I don't want to get, you know, too political or personal in regards to that. But, mm-hmm. you know, it. I had a 15-year career in HIV, and I didn't leave that job because I wanted to. It was kind of a, kind of a forced thing that happened, unfortunately. And, and at the crux of that was some sour relationships that ended up taking place around that time. Um, so here I am two days before my wife um, is going to go away. Uh, I don't have a job. 
Um, I have uh, two kids in school, one in high school about to enter her freshman year, uh, one in junior high, uh, who was struggling with uh, stress and anxiety because of what was happening. And I had one kid, um, my oldest, in his first year of college, and, um, you know, he was on his own. We really couldn't provide that much assistance. And so, you know, all this is happening, and I get this, this second job, and it's like, oh, my goodness. You know, if, if you think you had zero role in what happened with your wife, you're a fool. Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't commit the, the crime, per se, uh, but I had an influence, and, and here, was, here was the influence, and, and this is reality of it, and this is where it gets uncomfortable, right? But, um, you know, I had to address the fact that I had a belief system that I thought I was smarter. Mm. I thought I was better uh, than my spouse. I thought I deserved more. I thought she wasn't oh. pretty enough. I thought she wasn't thin enough. Uh, I thought that, you know, she wasn't executing to the level I thought she was capable of or what I thought she should be. Um, you know, the verbal and mental nagging, you know, could be called abuse for sure. And it was just a real wake-up call for me to say, okay, you need to do some work on your own. Uh, and it took a long time. You know, we had a lot of ups and downs in our relationship, uh, you know, been separated two or three times, close to divorce once. Um, I stepped out in the relationship, um, you know, and I had to address all those things. I had to talk about all those things because the last thing that we need in our community is someone, you know, um, talking about these things, uh, but then not taking ownership for those things. You know, right. I think, um, who is it? Uh, Dr. Jeffrey Duncan Andrade talks about um, Dr. Uh, Cornell West, right? People are tired of hearing a sermon. They want to see a sermon. Uh, and so I try to, you know, have integrity with what I'm trying to teach and what I'm trying to do. And that means, you know, being humble and vulnerable enough to show your errors and your mistakes. So I appreciate all the things that you said. Um, and I'm working hard to live up to those things, but no one free of spot or wrinkle. That's incredible. I want to take a second to thank you for being so vulnerable with us. Yes, thank you. Um, I mean, that it's, it is very impactful. And I think that a lot... I mean, that's, that's such a journey that you've shared with us that I think a lot of people are afraid to embark on um, with themselves because it's hard to, to face a hard truth about yourself like that. Um, so thank you for sharing that with us. Uh, I appreciate that. You know, my heart's beating out, my, out of my chest right now. Oh. Um, but, but again, that's, that's part of the work, right? And, you know, you, we're going back to this notion of masculinity. What is it to be masculine? And I think what, what it is to be masculine is to be honest uh, and to be able to have vulnerability. When Good people answer. hear the word vulnerability, they think weakness. But if you, you know, kind of study the word vulnerable, right, it means to show your whole heart in some sense. And, and to have the capacity to endure a wound, right, to be vulnerable. Um, and if you look at where it comes from, it comes from uh, the word uh, corazón. If you look at the word corazón, the root word of corazón is cor, for courage. And so, in fact, to be vulnerable, to show your whole heart, is to be courageous, right? Um, and so that's a level of masculinity that we're not quite getting to, and men don't know how to get to because... 
you know, we're not having these conversations and we're not being shown these things. As a matter of fact, what's happening to many of our men in regards to socialization of men is that by the time they hit the fourth, fifth grade, they're being told to not have any emotions, to not show those things, you know, quit crying, quit being a girl, right? And that's something to think about as well. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, don't show any emotions, you know, toughen up, you know, get back up and and man up, right, is, is a phrase that you hear all the time. And what's really interesting, right, is most people think that, you know, women are the emotional ones, right? And that's kind of the the stereotype that's out there. But in fact, if you, you know, look at the research, men have a wider range of emotions up through the third, fourth, or fifth grade, right? They actually express themselves more than women. But by that time, the socialization process takes place, and now everything gets funneled into one single emotion, which is anger. And, and then you're given, you know, essentially a single emotion to shape the world around you. Mm-hmm. And the tool that you're given to harness that anger is violence. And so you are essentially trying to shape the world around you with violence and anger. Um, and it's not working. You know, it's a detriment to, you know, everybody. That's true. And, you know, um, I have a son. He's one and a half years old and he's beautiful and he's very expressive. Congratulations. Um, he's adorable. Very excited yes, about thank that. you. Yes. Yes, he takes nothing after his mom. He's <laughs> <laughs> Oh no, he is he's equally as stubborn. He's oh my goodness. So How are you I going? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh my, he's going to be fun. He'll be fun. But I worry about this a lot for him. Um I think, you know, I do have the benefit of of he has a strong father figure in his life. I think um I'm grateful that my husband is um you know, somebody who who is learning more and more every day, challenging himself to be more vulnerable, um, you know, and he's very good at standing up for what he believes in, um, you know, and so I, I I do have kind of that privilege, but I, I worry still so much about, you know, what it, when he goes to school, what is my son going to be taught by other little boys? I don't want him to get pushed around by other little boys, and I don't want him to push anybody else around, but there's only so much that I can do. What do you think that I, as a, as a parent, can do to help, you know, lessen this this socialization that you're talking about in my own son? Uh, I don't, I don't have, you know, the answer or, or uh, you know, um, the answers, right? But uh, I have my perspective on that, right? And I think one of the things that we have to do a better job is uh, tend to our primary responsibility in that relationship, right? We are a culture uh, that is a do culture, right? We're always doing something and we have to be doing something and our job requires us to be doing something that we are not developing the neural networks in the brain that are needed for our children to regulate their thoughts, to regulate their behaviors, to regulate their emotions, to self-soothe, to develop resiliency, um, and those kinds of things. And so, you know, our primary task and our primary responsibility is to really engage in that relationship and create and cultivate as much time as we can with our kids. And within that comes the uh, toughness that those kids needs in regards to being able to say, despite what happens, I know I'll be okay because I have that support that that's always there for me. When we don't have those things and we go through some of the stuff that we go through in our lives, we don't have the capacity to deal with those things very well. And, you know, and then that comes with its, the detriment. Uh, you know, one of the things that I stumbled across five or six years ago that changed the path of my whole life uh, up until now was the Adverse Childhood Experiences Study. When I came across that study, uh, I had to rethink everything that I was doing as a therapist and as a counselor. I didn't understand 
um, brain development. I didn't understand, you know, uh, brain neurology and how that worked. I didn't understand the fight, flight, or freeze or the stress response system and how that played out in people's lives and people's behavior. And, you know, if you walk far enough back in time, all of us will walk back to our tribe, right? So we come from groups, we come from tribes, we come from clans. And that's when we function the best. And those things set us up in regards to the circuits in our brain and the wiring that takes place. I'm talking with my hands. You can't see it right now. <laughs> um, but, you know, it sets up those circuits in a way that allows us to deal with those things. And so it's no accident then that we, when we don't have those relationships or the relationships that we have are abusive in some kind of way, shape, or form, there's a very deep impact in you as an individual uh, and then all the stuff that you need to be able to deal with life and overcome the adversity that comes with it. And so, again, making sure that you're cultivating time uh, to develop those circuits in that child and for that child to know that regardless of what happens, you're there and you're present and you're loving. Uh, and then, again, your internal state is your child's internal state. So how is it that you are showing up in the world? How is it that you're responding to things? Uh, they're going to learn how to deal with those things. They're going to learn how to handle those stresses. Uh, by watching how you deal with those things and how you handle those stresses. Oh, man, I better get into meditation or something. <laughs> <laughs> when you tell, you know, a boy not to cry because that's girly, or when you say, you know, man up, I I was always taught by my mom when I, if I ever said that, and I really got shot down quickly by my mom saying that that was disrespecting my sisters by saying stuff like that. And so I feel like uh, more people need to do that. I mean, as a kid, I was like, but that's what, you know, all my cousins are saying, but it really, they were right. I was disrespecting my sisters and my mom by saying things like that. That's such a powerful point. Uh, Tony Porter, in his TED Talk, um, talks about this issue, right, where he is talking to a young football player, and he asks the football player, you know, what's the worst thing the coach could, you know, say to you, right? Um, and the boy responds, you know, being called a girl. And, okay, well, you know, you're playing like a girl. And so what about that is, is really difficult for you? And he comments in the TED Talk that he thought, well, you know, it would be hard and it would be uncomfortable. But the little boy says it would, it would devastate me. It would crush me. So here's an individual, right, a young man who perceives that the worst thing he could be called or the worst thing that he could be told is that he's a girl or he's playing like a girl and that that idea, that notion would absolutely crush him. What must we be thinking and teaching boys about women if that's the case? Okay. And again, you look at what's going on in our, in our society and you look at wh who's showing up to make the changes, who's showing up to address the things that we're dealing with, who's showing up at these community functions and at these conferences and at these things that you're talking about. It's not us. It's women. So quite frankly, if I play like a girl, think like a girl, uh, I act like a girl, I think I'm good. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And, you know, I've all, you know, this is why I always love talking to you. You always um, make me feel so inspired and really full of hope that, you know, we can move in the right direction because, it, you know, every time I talk to you, you're, you are able to frame the situation in a way that, um, is both calming and it, it provides me with such a deep understanding, I feel. And so I really appreciate that. And, you know, in these kinds of conversations, I mean, not necessarily just, you know, when you and I have talked to each other one-on-one, -on -one, but in these kinds of conversations, we link this kind of um, toxicity in, in the socialization of our young men 
to the violence that ends up, you know, um, occurring later in life, typically against women. Um, you know, and so in our line of work, we have these conversations all the time. And there are always naysayers who say like, you know, oh, it's it's the liberals who want to make our men less manly, um, you know, and they they, of course, respond in such an angry and toxic way. And it's like you're kind of proving our point and you don't even realize it. Exactly. So, um, you know, when you have all, when, when you have these discussions with these these men who maybe have have come from rough backgrounds or maybe they're angry or, you know, it, the men who come to your group, um, what. I guess, you know, I assume that you're going to get some of that same pushback, at least at, at least at the beginning or at least in part. So what do you have to say to those naysayers who are like, we're trying to make our men more girly and our girls more manly, and that's not good for society? Uh, that's a really strong point and a really good point, you know. Um, and listen, there are some naysayers out there that make really strong arguments uh, and again, are you open enough to hear what they have to say to say, okay, what about those things hold true? And what about those things can I disagree with uh, and dismiss, right? Um, so for me, um, masculinity in and of itself or this idea of being a man, it's, it's not bad, right? There's a lot of good things about being a man. There's a lot of good things about being masculine. Uh, there's a there's an honor in protecting the people that we love. There's an honor in presiding over the people uh, that mean something to us. There's you know honor in you know um, pro, uh, what's the other one? Uh, protect, preside, and provide. Right to provide for the, the people uh, in our charge. But the problem becomes it's when you have one setting to approach all things in that one setting is a default to hyper-masculinity, right? Where it's a win-at-all-cost mentality for every situation, all the time, regardless of the outcomes. That's the problem, right? You know, you being a man in and of itself is not the problem. You having, you know, masculine, uh, you know, traits, you know, isn't the problem in and of itself. It's, again, it's just this notion that we don't, you know, switch out of this default setting. And I think that's the problem. And I try to communicate that with my clientele. Embrace what's good about being who we are and what we are. Uh, understand, you know, historically, biologically, you know, the roles that we have played and the responsibilities that have been placed, you know, on us and honor those things. But then also be aware of the messaging and the, you know, Things that we're seeing as it relates to being a man that are unhealthy for us, right? I, I just think that we have to uh, be more conscious about that. And and that's how the word, you know, hype, uh, toxic masculinity got weaponized, right? They're just like, oh, you're saying, you know, manhood and masculinity across mm -hmm. the board is not, a, is not a good thing. And you now are feminizing uh, our, our men. All of us have certain traits of femininity and all of us have certain traits of masculinities, right? right? Regardless of, of the genders, right? There's these notions of being balanced within those two things. But uh, that's what I try to share with the people that I have the conversation with. Well, thank you so much, um, Jose Alfredo. I know, I mean, I, I could, we've, we've had conversations that have lasted hours and hours and hours, and I always appreciate them. Um, but we do have to kind of wrap up. But before we do... Um, I want just kind of one last question is, you know, to our audience, we have a very, I think, diverse audience. Um, if there was one thing that you would want them to walk away from this discussion having learned, what is that one thing? 
I really appreciate that question because it's a great question to end on. You mentioned something uh, that you said I offer you, and I really appreciate that, and that's this notion of hope. Uh, and I think that really is is the uh, message I want to give to clientele, uh, and then also I want to give to the community at large, and I want to give to anybody that comes into contact with me is this notion of hope. Uh, heard about this study that happened, I think, way back in the 50s. Uh, guy had, uh, it's called the swimming rats, right? He had two rats, one that was domesticated, and one that was wild, and they dropped the domesticated rat and the wild rat in the water um, to see how long they could swim. The domesticated rat, you know, was familiar with this and swam for a little bit. The wild rat was just like, I don't know what's happening here. And in 15 minutes, the rat drowned. And so they ran the experiment again, and, you know, this time at about 14 minutes and 50-some seconds, the researcher pulled that wild rat out of the water, right, and the rat thought it was going to die and, and whatnot, the scientists allowed that rat to rest, and then it dropped it back in the water. How long do you how long do you think that rat uh, swam the second time around? Gosh, was it longer than fifteen minutes? Sixty hours. What? Two hundred and forty times its original baseline, and why? Because it had hope. Um, so hope is a very powerful thing, and I think it's our responsibility to um, really give that to the community and to bring that forth in the community to have hope because hope is what's going to move the ball forward. And what's really interesting, right, is we look at these people who are involved in behavioral change, whether that be in agencies, whether that be in teachers and school settings, whether that be policymakers, and the metric that we, you know, measure these guys against is, hey, are we, are we increasing school grades? Uh, are we decreasing behaviors? But the metric that we should judge all people by is, are they giving me a sense of hope? And if they're not giving me a sense of hope, then this person uh, is not going to be of success and is not going to be one who moves the ball forward. Uh, and I think that's a really uh, important message that I want to get out. And listen, hope, it's built into your biology. It's built into your brain. It's called neuroplasticity. It allows me to do the work that I do. What good would it be, right, if I had this wonderful group session and, you know, we just hit it, we had this wonderful conversation, right, you leave the group, you leave the agency, just like, man, I killed it, that was really fantastic, but the brain is fixed, right, that's what we used to believe a decade or, or so ago, mm -hmm. we ran into this idea of neuroplasticity, but prior to that, we thought wherever your brain was at 22, 24 years of age, that's where it was at and you were stuck. Well, that would be really hopeless in regards to changing behavior, but because of that, you know, science and because of that understanding, neuroplasticity, the brain is always changing. The brain is driven to help you wake up tomorrow in the best possible way. Then that gives me hope. We can change uh, individuals. Um, it's it's going to take some time. It's going to take some dedication. It's going to take some patience, uh, and it's going to take in la quech, um, which is you know translates Lucy into tú eres mi otro yo. It's going gonna, it's gonna to be rooted in our ability to see ourselves in other people. Well, that was beautiful. You thank gave me actual literal goosebumps. Um, thank, <laughs> thank you, you so, so much, much for being here. Yeah, I really you. appreciate you guys uh, you know, bringing me here and allowing me to uh, share some of my thoughts and, and, and stuff with you. Uh, this is a conversation we had a long time ago about having a podcast and doing That's this. We're really super proud of you guys. Uh, and I hope that you're able to, you know, move yourselves forward and that you get the support that you need because I think this is very timely and needed for our community uh, as Latinos, but then also at large. We need to, you know, engage in these kind of conversations. So really, really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Wow, thank you so much. Thank you, really. I f it feels like I'm like in church, or I assume this is what it feels like to be in church, because every time you just 
finish two sentences, I'm like, amen. Keep going. Preach. It's amazing. You don't want to hear it. You want to see it. <laughs> this is great. So um, we do need to wrap up. Again, thank you so much, Jose Alfredo. It's always so amazing to have a conversation with you. I appreciate you. I appreciate the work that you do. Um, whatever they're paying you, it's not enough. <laughs> we need to set up a campaign to make us all rich. Yes. Okay. Make me rich. <laughs> all right. So thank you all for listening as well. Um, as usual, you can follow us, uh, The Latino Card, on Twitter, at The Latino Card. Uh, JJ, Ash, and I are also um, each individually very active on Twitter. You can follow us. Um, please do send us any kind of messages. Um, you DMs, know, slide into our DMs. Slide into our DMs. Uh, you can remain anonymous or however it is. We do want to hear from you. Um, you can also email us at latinocardidaho at gmail.com if you want to do that. We are um, also now on Facebook at the mm -hmm. Latino Card. Yeah, we're, we're super fancy now. Um, so again, another shout out to Joy Horton for the music. Um, and a special thank you again to Jose Alfredo Hernandez for um, being our guest today. And we will see you in the next podcast. Hasta luego. Bye.